Welcome to the Gain Momentum podcast, focusing on timeless lessons from global leaders on how to grow and scale a business in hospitality, travel, food service, and technology. I'm here with my special co-host, Michael Cohen. How are you, Michael? I'm great. Always a pleasure and uh, really excited to talk to John about very innovative and interesting things. And our guest is John Smallwood, president of Travel Outlook, which also features Annette, the virtual hotel agent. How are you, John? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. So we're going to dive right into our first of four questions to ask you, John which is, when it comes to scaling a business, what is the single piece of advice you would give entrepreneurs from your perspective as a professional in hospitality technology? That's a big question, a very big question. I mean, it's actually the, uh, the main question, really. Uh, I mean, how do you come up with an idea that makes sense and has some legs? And how do you take the fact that you probably have very little money to invest in terms of getting the word out and just by using your wits, find a way to get the word out to, to the most people that you possibly can. So uh, my advice would be uh, that the last resort would be to immediately think you need to find investors. If you uh, Once you find investors, I mean, that's something you was the uh, cliche, a bell you can't unring. And then you've got people telling you their opinion of how you should move forward and how you should do things. But if you're an entrepreneur with a strong vision and you, you know where you're headed, I think then the, the main issue becomes time. It's not going to happen fast enough for you. Uh, so it's critical that you try to have an idea that's got, that has some kind of shelf life. It can't be something that, hey, this is really hot right now, because by the time you really get to a point when you're reaching the market with it, it'll be passe. So uh, even though, uh, you know, we felt like conversational AI was just starting to become something people were talking about, all of a sudden it became something everybody was talking about. And we felt like we were kind of behind the eight ball. But luckily, we chose really good technology to power it. And when you've got good technology powering whatever your idea is, that gives you a little bit of an upper hand. It's not quite such a flash in the pan. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, and obviously coming from experience, I can imagine, as why, that's why you're here. The key nugget from that too is, you know, especially in a start, but we're talking startups here, John, I think that that's fair. The, 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 the lens you came through was from a startup perspective and ego needs to be put to the side. You used to be the smartest person in the room. You need to surround yourself with smarter people than you. That's the cliche, but it actually leads so much success, more success. And frankly, you need to be open to the fact that you're not going to be calling all the shots. And and uh, totally hear that. And, and I think that's really sage advice. Obviously, understanding that it's going to take time, you need to figure out the landing strip, start, start conceptually and actively fundraise. Beautiful, important, timeless. Right. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's interesting to, to sort of supplement what I just said. When we first rolled out this technology, it had a different name. We, we called it something else, the virtual hotel agent. And uh, we spent a few bucks getting that word out. We hired a, a trademark attorney. We felt like we were on, on solid ground. And then uh, it turns out that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office had a backlog of things because of COVID. And the trademark attorney we hired didn't actually check that very well. And someone else had 
found they wanted to use that same name for almost exactly the same technology. And our thought was, well, maybe we can call these guys and see if they'll let us use it. I mean, we're, we're small, small fish here. Well, and then we found out they were a $500 million company traded on the NASDAQ and our attitude changed from, let's make sure they don't even know we used it. Let's just drop as fast as we can. And then we thought, well, let's, we really were sold on the idea of naming our technology with a feminine name like Siri or Alexa. So we were sold on that. Well, I was a pretty interesting exercise to Google uh, AI bot plus female name. They're all taken. They're all taken. We were thinking Harper. What a great name, Harper, the virtual hotel agent. Harper Books uses it for their internal bot. I mean, it's just crazy. We were lucky to get a net. We were lucky to really find a good trademark attorney to firm it up for us. So I guess the other part to uh, my answer, Adam, would be don't move too quickly. You know, we probably should have hired a better trademark attorney. We should have gone a little more slowly. Uh, So you want to go as fast as you can, but you definitely don't want to make mistakes like we did. And also just to add to this, John, I think it's important is, and I had this sage advice from uh, people who are much more experienced than I years ago, your idea usually is not singular. You, it may be, you may have a better mousetrap, but there's mousetraps that I don't care what the technology, hotel, other industries, there's others out there. There's going to be others out there. There has been others out there before. Now, of course, forget about the, if you don't mind, the particular technology you're commercializing today. You need to believe, you need to know that you have obviously something that's better and more impactful, but you cannot right. be naive to your point that, you know, can't find naming conventions, people, you know, so that's a really good, I think that's important advice from someone as senior as you and some of us to maybe burgeoning entrepreneurs in the hotel technology space. I want to circle back before we got into what was almost the perfect answer for question number two uh, regarding the just trademarks, but circle back to this whole idea of shelf life. So what advice would you give people to better reflect on those ideas and to better evaluate ideas in terms of those that have the shelf life. Because we, we all know I, I, ideas are a dime a dozen, but execution is what really matters. But still, how do you know what ideas to pick out for that execution? Tough one. Very tough one. Harder than it looks. A question that deserves a lot of careful thought. Uh, As an example, I was talking to someone who is in medical school, and I asked him, what are you thinking of doing when you get out of medical school? What kind of a doctor do you want to be? And his answer was, one that won't be obsolete when I graduate. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, AI, physician's associates, nurse practitioners, they're cheaper. They're learning to do more and more. So he said, I need to find a a discipline that is going to be needed. So he's thinking surgery or something more serious like that. But that's a good example of looking down the road and thinking, you know, when I go to market or when I go to get my job, will there be a job? Will there be a market? So the shelf life concept is one that requires probably more thought than people give to it. It's kind of an exercise of thinking, let me put myself into the future, trying trying to remember how quickly things have changed in the past, say, 10 years. What will be needed? What would be available? And, you know, as you know, Adam, our main our main business is a call center, Travel Outlook, a premier hotel call center, where we we focus on four and five star luxury properties. We have a very strong niche, 
And that we got into that because our thinking was that when someone wants to book a hotel room with a $500 average daily rate, they're not going to want to do it online. They're not going to want to talk to uh, any, they want to know what they're getting for $500. So we aimed for that market. And Annette, I believe, is going to have a shelf life because we're hoping to get her installed in many places as we can, but the technology is changing so fast. Soon, Google's basically going to say, if you buy a certain amount of AdWords, we'll give you the technology. You know, it's just going to be a giveaway. Uh, Luckily, we've chosen a a provider that's, you know, spent hundreds of millions of dollars developing it, the ability to understand the question, but it all changes so fast. It changes so fast. So I'm almost impossible to predict, but my answer would be take more time than you think thinking about what might happen before you, uh, you, you, you put all your eggs in that basket. So to that point, would you agree that building in the capacity to pivot, selectively pivot, and flexibility into the product planning or the solution planning or the business planning because of what we just said, that the shelf, I believe, and this is a generalization, shelf lives are shrinking in general. So the ability to have, you know, to create multi-shelves that may be adjoined that you could kind of like hop on that's relevant enough or related enough that you don't have to do a whole rebuild or a whole reorg or a whole new business model, but you have that ability to kind of take momentum, repurpose and push the momentum to that next level of slight change in the industry, competitive environments changed black swan event, right, John? I mean, all these yeah. different variables, right? So that's that's interesting. Yeah, you're, what's popping into my mind was what came through my email box today in my Word a Day program. The word today was quaquaversal, which means universal in all directions, quaquaversal. And it's exactly what you just described, Michael. Interesting. You, know, you want to have an idea that can go in any direction, any time. I got to think that those ideas are made of platinum. They don't yes, come very of often. They're premium. But, you, but, I, but I hear what you're saying, and I think it's an essential point that shouldn't go unrecognized. Un, uh, and that is that if you think you've got a great idea, you've got to think, can it be used in more than one way? Can I connect it to something else and have it work? Yeah, those are the kinds of questions that if you ask, you, you have a shot at actually making it and having something that might make it to market. Isn't the whole thought process of trying to fit an existing idea to another another entity, isn't that an idea of itself? So aren't you just creating a practice of creating more ideas? Seems like the exercise itself creates a bit of a virtuous circle in terms of thinking of better ideas as you go through it. Idea APIs. Yeah, there you go. Coming soon, AGI is next. Anyway, John, on to our second question. What are some of the common pitfalls or failures you have witnessed that business owners should look to avoid when scaling their business? Well, we've talked about the big one, which is getting so locked into one simple idea that you devote all your efforts to that. And then by the time you've reached the point where you go to market, everyone's got one or yours is not as good as the one next door. So I I would go back to my comment earlier about why we created Travel Outlook, which was the idea that people spending a lot of money for a hotel room would want to speak to someone. They'd want to be sold. Luckily, that seems to have held today. We started 16 years ago, and it still seems to be the case. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, oh, no one's going to call a hotel anymore. No one's going to call us. You know, we get 10,000 minutes in a, in a week from a hotel. I mean, people are calling. 
So my thinking is that an idea has got to have, what's the word I'm looking for here? Sort of a common sense. Think about it for a minute. Does it make sense that three years from now, people will still be doing this? Because that's about how long it'll take. I have a friend who uh, his favorite expression was, takes 15 years to be an overnight success. And he's right. He's right. That's interesting. So we're, we're talking about trying to encourage in the ideation stage. And it's not just startups. This is scale-ups and enterprise. Enterprise, they have a new product. They want a, a product expansion. And John, we've all been in these scenarios, and so has Adam, where everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid and it's in their own vacuum. They're confirming a new product or they're managing when they don't have enough information or feedback. So it's building in this kind of is that universal always on usefulness. Will there be a usefulness, not a use case even, a usefulness? Will there be an impact for this idea, concept, or product three years from now, five years from now, and maybe 10 years from now? And what do we need to build in, even just into the team that's you know, bringing something to market, or again, an enterprise expanding their product line, that kind of thought process, that kind of being honest with each other is, is something that's not prevalent in every startup, scale-up, or enterprise today. Yeah, well, you're talking about maturity, really. You're talking about uh, someone, say, in their 20s has a great idea, almost destined to fail, I would think, unless it's so unique. And they have the education and the, and the contacts to make it happen. But just the average business person, say, with the average business degree, not Stanford or Harvard or whatever, thinking, now that's a good idea. Yeah, but if you've got someone who's been around people who have seen it all before, well, here's my idea. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And then you got support around you. You'll make it all happen. The other, then go back to the first guy who gets to be 35, 45, 50, 47 years old and thinks, now I've got an idea. Now there's a whole lot of experience there thinking maybe it, will, it might work. So it's, it's not something that happens overnight and the environment has a lot to do with it. But if at all possible, the goal will be to think, you know, down the road a little bit, look down the road. You know, I, years ago, I did a, uh, one of, you know, how the, the uh, they have these uh, driving courses, you know, we like I went to the Bob Bondurant course in Phoenix to learn how to drive cars faster. And I remember uh, going around the course thinking I was doing really well. And after the course was over, Bondurant himself came and talked to each of us. He stood on a certain corner, I guess, and he made notes about us and going, and he said to me, he said, you need to look further down the road. And I said, why? What do you mean? He goes, you're just looking right in front of the car. You'll learn that the further you go look down the road, the faster you can go. And I've always remembered that phrase and I've applied it to business too. The further you look down the road, the faster you can go. How can entrepreneurs get out of their own head? You know, you tell you to color that. It's a tough uh, question. It is, yeah. It's a good question because it's like, you know, how can a turtle live without its shell? You know, I mean, that's what entrepreneurs do. I mean, you know, we were talking before we got on the call here, we were talking about music and, and Michael said he likes progressive rock. There was one line in a Jethro Tull song. He said, you put your bet on number one and it comes up every time. That's right. The other kids are all back down and they put you first in line. And that's exactly what it is. You put your bet on number one and that's you. And then I think the final line on that is, and you wonder who to call on. Well, there is no one to call on. It's just you. I mean, I've heard it said that the best thing about working for yourself is there's no one to tell you what to do. But the worst thing is there's no one to tell you what to do. So those are the, that's it. I mean, you can, I don't know how you want to get out of your own head. I don't know that it's something that you want to do. I think it's, uh, that's where you're comfortable and that's where the ideas come from, you know? Now, there are some people who 
you know, when they're in their own head and they don't know what to do, I mean, obviously they're not going to go anywhere or do anything with it. But if you've got a, a modicum of business ability and skill, the ability to, to organize people toward a goal that you have in mind, uh, I don't know that you want to get out of your own head. John, we're going to move on to our third question. What do you see as the key opportunities and challenges for hospitality technology companies in late 2023 and beyond? Well, everyone's talking about AI, of course. Just before this call, I had a, um, I had a call with a, one of the larger hotel groups in the, on the West Coast that we work with. And um, we take all of their reservations calls. And, um, and I, I guess it was about three or four months ago, I told them about Annette. We had a, a bit of a pitch about it. And we talked about it. Well, they're kind of interested. They were thinking about it. Well, all of a sudden, they had a new chief operating officer come in. And he's only been there a week or so. And he said, all right, AI, what are we doing? AI, what are we doing? <clears throat> Let's talk about it. So right away, we had another, another call. <laughs> it was, hey, let's get started again. Let's get cooking again. So everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's talking about it. And they're just algorithms, really, aren't they? I mean, I think it's just getting a little overblown about what AI can and can't do. But uh, we're at this point now where everyone thinks it can do everything. Then it's nothing. Sky's the limit, you know? But hospitality is a people business. And if you push too far in that direction, you know, people are going to go find places to stay where they haven't pushed, pushed that far and, and they have the human touch. So I can see certain industries where AI could just run rampant and probably make a lot of sense. But hospitality is one that has to be done right. One of the things about Annette that we liked is the ability to understand the question being asked. We thought that was the pinch point for conversational AI. What we hate the most about that technology is I didn't understand that command, make a selection. I didn't understand, I didn't understand. Even when you say representative, I don't understand. So when we found Poly AI in, in England, which has developed a tech behind Annette, they uh, indicated that they programmed it using differently, using movie dialogue, Facebook, Reddit, how people talk, which makes it better at understanding the question. That was the key for us. We didn't want guests getting upset. We wanted them to ask the question, get the answer. If we could accomplish that, done. It's all down to understanding the question. So um, AI is important, but got to have the human touch. So what's interesting about that in general is, you know, Metaverse was two years ago. AI is today. Mobile was 10 years ago. You know, mobile apps, every, every hotel. Had, so these are real. These are substantive. Sometimes these are paradigm shifts, but they're really a tsunami of change. And to your point, John, in, in general is what's interesting, what you just said is that from a to back to Adam's question is being able to manage this tsunami of change on the buy side, on the sell side, on the entrepreneurial side, on the enterprise side, and then kind of, again, relating it, overlaying it to the industry that we all love, the industry that is a global industry, the industry that's multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. And we just, you know, we speak of this very often in our organization and on this podcast, like you just said, it's a business about people. It's a business about relationships. Yes. Some of those relationships, John, are going to be, as we know, with an art of artificial intelligence entity. And we also know there's going to be interactive AI and all these things. I also have some expertise in that space. We're not going to get into that in great detail in this podcast, but it's still about human interaction. It's about guest and staff satisfaction. It's about execution. Technology mm, is right. incredibly important. We all know that. 
it's many times the linchpin or the or the hub of it all to be profitable, but it's still about human human experience just in, in regards to hospitality. You know, John, to pick up a point here, we talk about applying AI to existing systems. And you mentioned saying AI is more applicable in other in other industries because maybe the AI fits better to the existing system of practices that they already have in place. And maybe for hospitality, it isn't the best fit in a lot of areas because we are a people industry. So what I'm wondering is the term that the buzz term that I keep hearing about this is the term guardrails. And where do you think the guardrails are for AI in hospitality? What areas do you think are always going to be there for hotels where it's always going to be people and no matter how hard AI companies try to break down that door, they're never going to get in because the system and the nature of our business demands it be a, always be a people-first industry. Can you think of any guardrails? Well, my vision of a perfectly situated or run hotel front desk is one where there is always someone available to look you in the eye when you walk up to the front desk and take care of while you're visiting with it. That's not being interrupted. To me, that's the perfect scenario. When you look at the revenue side of a hotel, in the old days, we used to have something called walk-ins. And the old joke was lock the door behind them, you know, when they when they walk into the lobby. You're not leaving. You're staying here tonight. What, what, what rate do I have to give you for you to stay here tonight? So they may there may be the odd walk-in that still happens. Well, that that person walking up and saying, do you have anything available tonight? You know, we were staying next door. We're not, we don't like it so much. Have you go, what have you got? Well, if the phone's ringing and they're being interrupted, that's actually having a deleterious effect on the human interaction. And the phone is ringing with simple stuff like, I want more towels or a simple question like, can I leave my luggage at the front desk? Or how do I get to the airport? What time is breakfast? Where is it located? And what are the pool hours? Can my kids come to the pool? Can I get towels at the pool? These kinds of questions are, do not need a person talking to someone at the front desk going, just, just one second. Yeah, the pool opens at nine. Thank you very much. No, the person at the front desk, you should have their full attention. So in my view of a perfectly run hotel, the goal would be that the people at the front desk think people. Or a call that can't be a more complex call. Let me, I'll take care of that. And I think that AI or conversational AI done correctly fits perfectly into that. It really fits perfectly. Now let's move over to the reservations department. People in a room, in a hotel, will pick up the, uh, will say the husband says to the wife, what time is checkout tomorrow? Well, I, I don't know. Let's just call reservations because I know I'll reach somebody. Yeah, hi, what time is checkout? And you got a reservation agent who's been trained on a sales process to close business, answering a call. Meantime, other calls are coming in, revenue is being lost. You could put the technology in there too to peel off those calls. If you got a simple question I can answer for you before I transfer you to reservations, yeah, what time's checkout? Oh, it's 11 o'clock. Anything else? No, that's it. Reservation is unmolested. And they're talking to people. Front desk, unmolested, <clears throat> talking to people on their walk up to the desk. Those are the ways I think that AI should be implemented, not coming at it from a point of view of how much money can I save? It needs to come from the point of view of how can it complement what we're offering at this hotel? And, we, and, and the person in the room only wants a quick answer. 
And I want it to ring and ring and ring and ring. And then someone goes, front desk, how can I help you? And they hear this rushed voice. They don't want that. They just want to know what time checkout is. So putting it in carefully, surgically, that way can really make a big difference and make everyone's life better. It doesn't become a matter of AI taking over the world. It becomes an AI of, I mean, a matter of AI making things actually better. As a follow-up to that question and that answer, your experience uh, from what you said is in the luxury upscale sector. And do you see those same rules and that same system does it is is it the same as you go down to other oh, other categories? Absolutely. My wife and I travel a lot, and you know it makes no sense to spend five or six hundred dollars a night everywhere you go. I mean that's that's a special trip, right? So we do stay at mid scale hotels. We you know and we we um, if they're well located, where we try to stay at Independence all we can. But where if they're located near where we need to be, and again front desk, you just have that same experience. Whether you're paying $175 a night or you're paying $675 a night, you have that same experience. And where does this really show up if you do it right? TripAdvisor. That person at the front desk can win over a, a guest who may have had a, 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 a stopped up toilet the night before. So sorry that happened. Uh, here, Here's a little coupon, have a breakfast on us, whatever. They go back and leave a five-star res- review. So it all, it's a beautiful you know, sort of circle of uh, guest service equals more revenue. And I guess you can measure that on TripAdvisor. Uh, you do. Uh, you can use AI to measure that now using sentiment analysis. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, we have, we implemented a net for Outrigger Hotels, and Jenna Villalobos at Outrigger was telling me that they they have they have seen an increase in their CSAT scores when after installing a net. They named a net Coral, and they have, they use Hawaiian voice talent for her voice, so <clears throat> it all fits together beautifully. And the CSAT scores have gone up overall. Wow. John, we're going to move into our fourth question. What are the key things innovative leaders and entrepreneurs should prioritize and focus on to gain traction for their business? Interesting you asked this. I was a terrible student in college. I really bad student. Took me forever to get out. I finally did. And But then I found that I was pretty good at business and I got more job offers than anybody my senior year and just, you know, ticked over and I kept on going, but I was always living by my wits. And I've said to my wife quite often, I really wished I'd paid attention in school. I wish wish I'd I'd learned the stuff they were trying to teach me because I learned it the hard way. I learned at school of hard knocks. How many years did I waste? How much money did I waste by just not paying attention when I was younger? So my advice would be, you know, you know, color by numbers. You know, don't skip any steps, spend any spare time you have learning about how to read a financial statement, really uh, understand it, you know, top to bottom, understand theories of management, uh, those types of things. You know, I mean, I feel like uh, if I painted by numbers when I was younger, I think I'd be a little further ahead than where I am now. I'm happy with where I am, obviously, but still the point is that you need to have a real assessment. And so my advice to someone starting out would be, it's very simple, read, Take, you read the Wall Street Journal every day, read your textbooks from college, you know, call your college advisor and ask them a question or two. Understand. Don't say you understand. Understand and take whatever time it takes to, to do that. And I think that if you do that, everything else will fall into place. So it's interesting because what you're talking about is uh, like core principles in the commercialization or business world. Forget about hotel technology. Forget about hospitality for a second. 
and that many innovative people, some of them are from, have gone through, you know, incredible experiences at Stanford and MIT, and obviously they painted by the numbers and had this in, innate talent. Right. As and, the contacts. and the contacts. And the contacts. I mean, they're in, a, they're in a class full of people that are stimulating them. You know, everyone's as smart as everyone else. And, and it's, right. you know, only, only the best can come out of that. I, I appreciate that. Obviously, I respect that. But the scenario is that there's multiple paths to success. One that you're talking about is, as you said, the school of hard knocks is sort of romanticized for entrepreneurship or scaling up a business or even if in your corporate career in an enterprise. It's sort of romanticized. It is a path. Many, many people have done it. But that's I mean, that, that that's a very what's the word in, in, introspective perspective, if I can use those two terms together, that you brought up because you're saying, you know, it's not that you have, not that people, maybe I'm the same, have regrets or not. It's like, we think, I agree with you, John, we think that there is a cleaner path. I always call it a cleaner path. You're still going to be successful. You're still going to have a good life or a good career and your products and your company and your corporate career may grow, but it's a cleaner path. Faster, faster path too. Sum it up this way, Michael, only an idiot would want to go to the school of hard knocks. <laughs> only is, that a, is that like a, is that just a tunnel or, or maybe that's Princeton? <laughs> is that, I don't know. Which, that's which my, uh, yeah. you, can, you can use that if you like, only an idiot in the school of hard knocks. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, I wish I'd paid attention. I wish I'd learned more. I went to uh, New Mexico State University. Yeah, I mean, I'm from New Mexico. I'm here in Santa Fe right now. This is where I, I've lived most of my life. And uh, my wife is from England, and quite often she'll she'll lord it over me with Oxford and Cambridge, and I'll say to her, "Did any of those universities discover a planet? Because Pluto was discovered at New Mexico State." There you go. So I get all these things of, "Oh, it's a dwarf planet. It's it's really an asteroid." Uh, that sounds to me like whining. <laughs> Great. Just kidding. What they say with uh, I guess about that point is youth is wasted on the young. That's yes. right. That's right. So my advice, if anyone's listening to this, if a younger entrepreneur or someone thinking about doing something, don't cut the corners. In the end, you'll wish you hadn't. You'll be further ahead. You'll be further ahead in the end. But uh, j just to close out here, um, this whole idea of not cutting corners and, and really learning uh, the theory of, of management practice and financial statements, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily even know what type of learners they are. So some people can learn off abstract information. Others need those examples and that visualization. So my, my question, all this is, of course, how did, how did you discover what learner you are so that way you could best learn and improve your business practices? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I think I just learned as time went on. Well, I do have a, a, an overriding philosophy that's always served me well. I used to own hotels and manage hotels, developed hotels in addition to these companies that I have now. And I always had this overriding belief that revenue was the most important thing. I always felt like, and that was, I always, that, I always focused on that to my detriment. I mean, I didn't understand the accounting side. More money will solve everything, right? So if I could just have the other side of the equation, I'd be much further ahead, but I just focused on making revenue. So I think that, um, that's probably the thing that's sort of allowed me to survive was just a natural desire and ability to, to see ways to generate revenue. But that's only half the equation. But that's so interesting, John, because what you just said, if I don't mind, if you don't mind, I've been doing this the whole podcast. You're, you were growth above all, growth above all. 
But mm-hmm. management of growth is what you just mm-hmm. said. If you so there's growth and there's management of growth mm-hmm. and optimization of growth and mm-hmm. you know fine tuning and and then understanding where the, as you said where if you had some some skill set which many people will have or will have or can have and have some contemplation layered into the growth 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 management actually is kind of sweet spot. Exactly right. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's the homework is uh, everyone who's uh, watching and listening is they have to start Googling uh, growth management and find all the textbooks and all the information you can. John, I I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been a great conversation and uh, so many valuable lessons herein. Thank Thank you, you, Adam. Thanks for having me. Michael, nice to meet you. Thanks for listening to the Gain Momentum Podcast. To stay up to date, make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Gain Advisors, head to gainadvisors.com.